Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. I first met Dr. Scott Kellogg in 2015 when I attended one of his workshops. I was at that time a budding schema therapist undergoing supervision for accreditation. Dr. Kellogg's workshop quite literally changed my life. Having volunteered for a group demonstration, I have found myself drawn into the most amazing transformative therapeutic experience. In chair work, I found the true north of my clinical work. I bought his newly published book, Transformational Chair Work, but didn't let myself read it until I was accredited. I then devoured it and subsequently began to reorient my clinical work around the truly transforming and powerful therapeutic art of chair work. We spoke to Scott Kellogg from his office in New York. You'll hear that the audio is not always clear. Sorry about that. We did the best we could. We hope you persevere in spite of the tech difficulties because of the great clinical insights and ideas that he has to offer. Welcome, Scott. It's great to have you on Clinically Thinking. I wonder if you could begin by giving listeners a brief summary of your clinical career. A uh, brief summary of my clinical career. Okay. Um, let's see. So I began my uh, training in 1985. Um, in 1988, when I was a graduate student, well, actually, I'd been working with homeless people in New York City. And in uh, 88, um, I had an opportunity to go work in a methadone program um, while I was going to grad school. And working with homeless people in New York, I began to realize, as many people did, that there was a problem with homelessness, but there was also a problem with addiction. And that addiction was, it wasn't just an economic issue, which it certainly was, but it was also, uh, you know, kind of issues of pathology and other issues as well. And um, so I began my sort of addiction psychology journey in 88 and did my dissertation on that. Um but one of the things that sort of drove that um, was, or came out of that, was a, a deep interest in how people change, how people heal, how people recover, what are the mechanisms of change. I discovered Jeff Young's work, I guess in the early 90s, actually. And um, I, began, I began sending him email, uh, letters and resumes. I wanted to come work with him. <laughs> but... Um, he didn't respond until 2000. <laughs> but you were persistent. I was persistent, yes. Uh, but he actually hired me in 2000 to work in his center in New York City. And in 2001, out of my, um, you know, I was trying to figure out how to make this work better, how to, how to be a better schema therapist. We were kind of in a transition between what's called the schema focus model and what's now called the schema mode model. We were in this transition period. And I felt I was doing okay, but I wasn't wasn't doing great. I think I was a little, I was kind of rigid in my schema focused work. I think now looking back, um, schema therapy at that time was very focused on imagery work. And Jeff is a master of imagery work, but um, and theoretically chair work was on the books, we called role playing, but it wasn't particularly being practiced. It was really very imagery focused uh, or. Uh, therapy at that time. But I began to look at some Gestalt stuff, began to think maybe there was something here and began to say, let me let me dive into this um, chair work. I tried it with a couple of patients and the second time I tried it, I had this major breakthrough. 
So a patient came to see me. Um, so he was going through kind of, he'd been running a business. It was an economic, basically the business collapsed and he was in various unpleasant uh, encounters with uh, lawyers and people who invested in him and kind of shame about um, the business failing. And he said to me, you know, I have, uh, I have real issues with authority. You know, I, I can't stand people telling me what to do. And of course, everybody's telling him what to do as his business is collapsing. Um, so I said, you know, I said, well, why don't you close your eyes and bring up a, a memory? And he brought up a memory of being a young man. He was actually a very gifted musician. His father was a professional musician. And his father taught him had taught him music for many years. And they would have these kind of grueling, horrifying sessions where he'd play music. The father would interrupt him and correct him. You're doing it wrong. And they would, they would go on and on with the father constantly correcting him and turning it into this nightmare. Um, so I kind of said, well, fumbled through this. I said, well, why don't you sit in this chair and imagine your father over here and just talk to your father. And he, he said, you know, Dad, you know, I love you, but I, I hated those sessions. You were like, you know, it's horrifying. You just picked on me and correcting me and. And then I said, why don't you come over here and be your father? And he, he went to the other chair. And basically, if you're a parent, you know this. You know, the father's not a bad man. The father's just very anxious. And the father just said, I was so afraid you wouldn't learn the right way. You'd make mistakes. You'd learn bad habits. You know, I just really wanted you to be able to play correctly and play very well. They went back to his chair, responding to that. Did a couple back and forth. Kind of fumbled my way through this session and nothing, you know, profoundly remarkable seemed to have happened. But a week later, this man came back to see me and he said, um, Doctor, if you cure me, I no longer have issues with authority. Everybody's been telling me what to do. I feel totally peaceful with it. So that was a pretty remarkable. It was transforming for him. Yeah, and that was like a one-session cure. I'd never seen one of those things before. You know, it was like, it was like the, the Yeti, you know, it was like this legendary thing you hear about, but I never, I never knew it existed. So that that really got me going. And then I just did a full deep dive into chair work and um, wrote, you know, it's what I decided to write a paper on chair work. And I kind of began to look at everything I could find. And chair work at that time was basically a lost art other than Leslie Greenberg. It really was, it was curious. Everybody knew about it, but nobody really practiced it. There really weren't any, any teachers, a few, a few people here and there maybe, but um and I was considered to be something of an eccentric, actually, in my interest in Cherok. Um, people didn't understand why I was particularly fascinated with this. Uh, they said, like, this is this old technique from the 60s and Fritz Perls and, you know, Esselin. And, and I was, I began to use it constantly. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So I was fortunate enough to have all these amazing experiences, like session after session. And um, after, in 2004, I wrote this first paper. In 2008, I began training people in chair work and began really engaging with the schema therapy world, which became extremely open to me on this. And that's when the kind of the world began to change, you know, for me. So it was an interesting journey of kind of uh, a little bit of, you know, seven years in the wilderness to some degree of people thinking I was kind of an odd person. <laughs> and now, now I'm talking to people in Australia about chair work. So the world has changed. <laughs> Could I take you back for a minute to help our listeners understand the origins of chair work? Some people know Fritz Perls, but they may not be familiar with Marino. Could you explain the journey from those pioneers to the present day? 
Sure. So uh, Jacob Moreno, as some people know, is the creator of Psychodrama, and um, Moreno is a is a you know, genius, a complicated person in many ways, uh, which in some ways I think didn't serve him well. But um, Moreno invented chair work. Um, Eric Byrne, in a kind of a funny passage, once said, talked about what he called the Moreno problem. And the Moreno problem is, is that when anybody invents a new experiential uh, technique or therapy, they then discover that Moreno created it before them. <laughs> you know, like everything you do is from Moreno. So Moreno created chair work. Um, and I had an email exchange with his uh, wife, Zerka Moreno, a number of years ago. And she, she told me something to the fact that he created it first for a woman whose father um, had passed away, who was grieving. And the chair represented, the empty chair represented, you know, the absence of her father. She said that's kind of how he first did it. But um, chair work was not a very important um, issue, important technique for Moreno, because Moreno is, you know, it's a group therapy and psychodrama. You use people to substitute um, for, you know, a person in somebody's life. But Moreno um, had these open psychodrama sessions in New York City from the early 1940s. And Fritz Perls, or Frederick Perls, the creator of gestalt therapy, tended on a regular basis from the early 1950s to the early 1960s. So it's here that Perls learns chair work from Moreno, but in my opinion, takes chair work way beyond what Moreno had envisioned. Um, for one thing, he takes chair work and brings it into the individual therapy setting, which is something Moreno did not do. And then Perls, you know, integrates many Moreno's ideas, but Perls has his own ideas. I think he brings more, a little more of a Jungian aspect to chair work as well. Um, so, you know, Perls also a complicated man, another genius, um, you know, but so I think we kind of, the uh, chair work that we do today really comes from, is rooted in Perls' work. Um, and he turns into what I would call a psychotherapeutic art form. So in the early 19, like early 1960s, Pearls is a completely unknown psychotherapist. And by the time he dies in 1969 or 1969 or 70, when he dies, he's like a world famous psychotherapist. So in the space of about six years, he goes from being unknown to being extremely famous and really becomes famous through the, his use of chair work at the Eslin Institute and his astonishing abilities to, to work with this technique and uh, astonishing just gifts as a therapist. Um, again, a complicated man, you know, both these, both these men are not easy, but as a therapist, he's just a genius beyond comprehension, really, in my opinion. Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I think he's a very tragic man. He's, uh, you know, many of our, of our great teachers, you know, are not, they didn't have easy lives. Um, I think he's profoundly unloved, feels profoundly unloved, um, very narcissistically wounded. His father really hated him. And I think he uh, is sort of searching for love and searching for a good father in some ways throughout his life. And it's because some of the stories about him are not so nice. Um, but uh, I, I try to look at him through compassionate eyes. But also his ability to do this work was beyond comprehension. You know, I imagine it's not easy being a genius. It seems you've taken this work to another level with your orienting principles and the dialogues. Is that the way you see it? Um, I'm, I'm fearful to say I took it to another level. Um, but part of you know, I kind of put it back into a clinical basis, and then I had a discovery in 2018 where I discovered these 
four dialogues, which to me was sort of a, a breakthrough in my understanding. Maybe just to give listeners a little orient, orientation. So I kind of see that there are four orienting principles and there are four dialogues, kind of the way I look at, at chair work. And just to run through these quickly, or uh-huh. begin to run through them at least. So the four orienting principles are that we look at patients as in terms of having different parts or modes or voices or cells. We look at them in terms of multiplicity of self. And that's essential to schema therapy as part of gestalt therapy, as part of voice dialogue, it's part of increasingly part of all kinds of therapy, internal voice, internal family systems. We're seeing people as parts. And seeing people as parts really is a very good way to work with patients. Mm. Because if you see a patient as not having different parts, Sooner or later, you're kind of forced into a moral a moral stance with your patients. You know, why aren't they doing what we want them to do? Why are they not getting better? It you know it really can throw you into a, a difficult countertransference um, you know stance. But if you see people having different parts, you're going well. This part is you know doing this, but there are other parts, which means there are other possibilities. Giving voice to these different parts is very healing and transformative for people. Um, the third one is is for people to enact or reenact scenes from the past, the present, or the future. You know, this can really be healing, going back to trauma, dramatic stories, reworking things, um, you know, even preparing for the future. And lastly, that the goal of chair work, and in my opinion, really the goal of all psychotherapy, is really to strengthen the ego, the healthy adult mode, or the inner leader, depending on language that you like. And that that's the true north of our work here. And that's where we... It's where you can always go with your patients. You know, get lost, go back to the inner leader, go back to the ego, the healthy adult mode. That's what we're trying to strengthen. How does that translate into the therapeutic space? So lately I've been um, doing a couple of things around sort of inductions, I would say, of the healthy adult mode and schema therapy language of the inner leader. I actually um, anchor people, say like, you know, have them sit in a chair and go, my name is Lisa. I am the inner leader. This is my life. Sometimes I do a longer induction. It's kind of outline the tasks of the inner leader as sort of self internal self-regulator. And it's, it's kind of a force in the world. And then I move people to their parts and I can, then I come back to center. I really emphasize space chairs coming back. I'm the leader. This is my life. So I do this in a very purposeful um, and direct way. And I do it constantly. Um, in schema therapy, there's more of an emphasis, I think, traditionally on working with the wounded child, the vulnerable child part. And I think that's very important, but I think it actually makes more sense to do that within the context of also strengthening the, the healthy adult mode. So is that our goal, to strengthen the healthy adult by nurturing the vulnerable child? Sometimes I think schema therapy has a lack of techniques to strengthen the healthy adult whereas chair work seems to work well in that space. Right. I think, I think we're seeing more of an emphasis on the healthy adult mode. You know, I think contextual schema therapy, which has some people in Australia working with it, um, you're seeing that emerging. But I think more traditionally, it was all about reparenting the, the inner child. I think that was the huge focus on that. And I've been uh, shifting, or at least my work shifting towards this, this ego, healthy adult. Because most people come to therapy either, most of us in general, either we have an inner leader that is works well in some situations and doesn't work well in others or more problematic cases like borderline personality the whole inner leader is very underdeveloped you know that's yes in many cases it seems there's not much of a healthy adult at all i think so 
Another thing I've observed, which I don't know, I haven't seen anybody write about this, but I think it's very useful. Um, you know, your listeners might think about this. It took me a long time to figure this out. There were a couple of patients where I saw this, where there are patients who actually have very underdeveloped healthy adult modes, uh-huh. but they've actually developed a mode that is very competent in the world. That is, they may actually be very good at their jobs. Is that a coping mode? It's one. Well, I'm not sure you go on coping mode exactly because beyond, I mean, they you know they make a lot of money. They're professionally successful. I don't know if it's a coping mode or not, but I guess maybe it is. Okay. But it's not their inner leader, and it's confusing because they seem so functional in some arenas, but in this internal world, they're they're overwhelmed by emotional forces. And it took me a while to realize the that the successful part is not their inner leader. It's like something they've learned to cope with, you know, or survive. I see. How do you work out that the successful part of them is not actually the leader or the healthy adult? Uh, through painful <laughs> therapeutic experience. Mm. <laughs> because I couldn't understand, like, you know, you're doing all this work. Why is this, you're so completely unregulated in the session? Like, what is going on? You know, it didn't make sense to me until I realized this is not the inner leader. I have to admit, I was slow to pick up on that. But that's something I haven't seen people write about. Um, and I've heard also people talk about people who seem very functional in their lives and kind of seem totally dysfunctional in the therapy session. So I just pass that along as something that I've, I've observed that maybe has not been, or at least I haven't seen it being addressed particularly in the, the literature. Can you share a client example with us? That might be helpful. Yeah, I've, I have one patient I worked with for a long time who in many ways you know, has worked with um, we call Fortune 500 executives, you know, is works at very high levels with very successful people and is, is very skilled at it. Um, but it's in primarily is filled with fear and feels profoundly defective and is a great deal of trouble regulating internal emotions. It's, it's almost like a it's very, it's very childlike in many ways. Okay. But you, you never see this part is not the part they see in the outside world where she seems very together, very confident. I mean, she was my teacher. You know, I learned this from her. Um, and you know, it's certainly a history of trauma and, you know, difficult experiences in her background. But, um, yeah, and that, uh, so that's a kind of a, a strange split or something. So despite tremendous amounts of success, they're not happy. Not happy also, but, and, but not a, a sense of even inner ability to self-regulate. The leader seems very, very weak. The ego, the ego seems very underdeveloped. So I guess it's like a, a survival mechanism or coping mechanism in some ways they developed to function in this arena so they don't, you know, they can live. But it's not the same thing. It's confusing because you think, how can you be so functional? And yet in this session just seem to be so, you know. Mm. Can we turn to the four dialogues, which are perhaps the basic elements of the techniques of chair work? Right. So... Um, so this came to me in, in 2018. I kind of just, I feel like it's a discovery um, of, of these four dialogues. So the first one I call giving voice. And this is when you might say to a patient, you know, I'd, I'd like to invite you to move to this chair. And I'd like you to speak from your heart or speak from your pain. So this is a one chair dialogue. Just as somebody to move to a, to a chair and you just give voice to an emotion or speak from a specific part. And um, in the in 1960s Gestalt, there's a famous theory called paradoxical theory of change, and it's kind of a classic Gestalt theory by Arnold Besser. 
And basically, he argued that the way to change is to more deeply be yourself. And giving voice is the heart of the work. Nothing else is needed. And, for, and basically, patients go into themselves and, um, you know, give voice to something that, you know, I'm frightened, I'm scared. You know, what are you feeling? What are you feeling in your body? Say it again, amplifying it. And the idea was that if you go deeply enough into an experience, especially a negative experience, there will be some sort of catalytic shift that takes place. And kind of you go down and this will open up some sort of possibility. And, and obviously not every time, but it's the amplification, it's the intensification of an experience leads to change. And for the Gestalt therapists of that era, maybe even now, it's the only mechanism of change. Um, the second way, version of that is to kind of interview a part, which maybe I'll talk about later when we talk about inner, inner critic work. Um, really get to know, you know, a specific part, what it's about, what its history is. Um, and I do that a lot with the inner critic voice specifically. That's a very powerful technique to move someone to a chair and have them be that part. Right. And interview them asking, tell me, how did you come to be, et cetera, et cetera. It's not something a client is used to doing. Right. It can be hugely informative and powerful. Yeah, I had a very, uh, I had a kind of an amazing experience with this one. I, I went to a, uh, I went to a clinic and um, with my colleague Amanda Garcia Torres, we went there and, uh, you know, we said, "I will right, we'll do a little demonstration with somebody." Uh, a therapist said, "I'll play my patient, right?" And of course, you know, and if you if you do these things, people save up like the most difficult cases <laughs> they can imagine to throw at you. <laughs> so you, it's always <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> but and this patient has a voice telling her that she should set herself on fire. Why? Oh my God! Right, self-immolation. Right, you know, a horrifying, terrifying voice, right? And she's fighting not to do this, like, on a daily basis. So I have him, so he's playing her. I have him to sit in the chair, be yourself. Now move to the chair. And I start talking to this voice. You know, so why, you know, it sounds like you want to set Susie on fire. You know, <laughs> what's the story here? And bizarrely and amazingly, the voice says, yeah, because I'm trying to get her to stand up for herself <laughs> and be more, be more assertive. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is wild. And I kind of go, you know, you know, this might, you know, I'm sensing this might not be the best way to go about doing this because you're terrifying her. You know? Absolutely. So we have this whole conversation with the, with this critical voice that wants to set her on fire and voice guy says to me, you know, maybe you're right. You know, maybe this isn't the best way to do that. And I go back and have her play her healthy adult. They have to have a dialogue. And then he takes this, I found the follow-up. He actually goes and does this with the patient and this leads to this massive breakthrough with this patient. And who become dramatically better. I mean, he understood her enough and was able to apply this like that that day. And immediately there's a shift, you know. And that's a very extreme example, but that was you know, that was amazing. There's a real leaning into things that we wouldn't normally talk about. We wouldn't take the risk, but in chair work we can go exactly to where the fear is. I'm thinking of a client of mine who is in tremendous physical pain, and I'm wondering about this process to give voice to the physical pain in a way he hasn't done before. At the moment, he's trying to steer away from it, and I think he hates this pain. I wonder if this work could be useful to help him develop a better relationship with his pain or give voice to his pain. I have two thoughts. One is I personally stay away from those issues. Um, I think to deal with physical illness, um, I think you need to engage with it in a profound way. 
But having said that, there are definitely people who do this work with physical pain and find all kinds of things emerging. But I know, I know Jeff, Jeff in his book writes about a man who's got some sort of back pain uh, or something, and he does it and gets to be an inner critic voice and the pain goes away. So definitely it works, but I would just caution people that they might want to read up on it first before they, they go down that road. That would be my advice there. What are the best applications for giving voice then? I think the one I do most is the inner critic. Because um, the inner critic, some people have said, inner critic is the heart of all, all psychiatric disorders. That every, every disorder, depression, anxiety, addictions, you know, even some of the psychotic ways, everything involves inner, either inner critic directly oppressing the person or the person trying to get away from the inner critic. So in schema therapy, there's been a, a lot of emphasis on the critic as an internalization of an abusive figure. The voice dialogue people, and I've, and I've learned a lot from that tradition, sees the inner critic as a basically a protective force that develops early on in the patient's life to keep the patient safe. So um, from their perspective, the inner critic is often very anxious. Schema therapy perspective, inner critic is often very hateful. So you kind of want to talk to the critic and understand what is going on. I think what happened in schema therapy is that Jeff Young was working with a lot of borderline patients, very traumatized people, and he found you know he found internalizations of abusers in the in the minds of his patients. But I think I found in general these these critical voices are actually usually more anxious. They're more the voice dialogue version that they developed early on to protect the patient. They're kind of screaming and yelling at the patient to keep them safe. But if you get it wrong, for example, having been schema therapy trained, I might be wondering if it's an abusive parent. Right. I've noticed sometimes a client will leap in to protect the parent. Then I can reassess and say, okay, maybe this is an anxious parent. Maybe this is protective. Right. So I'll get three or four chairs out now. We see this vulnerability and the parent is afraid. We're trying to protect. And then the work proceeds more smoothly when I get this right. Yeah, I am. Um... Schema therapy is called the punitive and demanding parent. Um, and now there's a move to switch to the inner critic, change the language. And I think that's a step forward for schema therapists because now it opens us up to the, there's a whole world of inner critic research and people working in different ways. So it, it, that's, a good, that's a good model. Also, not many critics, you know, even internalizations, are not necessarily from the parents alone. Often they're like, you know, women with junior high school, other mean girls have got those voices are in their minds. So that's that's a a step forward you know we're evolving so that's good the second dialogue is telling the story can you explain the significance of that for us all right so here um there's a nice quote from roberts and holmes who say at the heart of any therapeutic encounter there is always a story right and certainly people come because of the burden of stories um you know uh trauma or secrets you know very common um, just to tell you one nice example, a woman came to see me and, uh, I'd seen her before, but she, she came back to see me. She had given birth to a baby or child. Um, and the birth experience was very traumatizing. It didn't go well. Uh, I think she, you know, I think there was too much pain and she didn't feel she was heard and she was very upset uh, about this, this birth experience. So really traumatized. And also felt very alienated from her child. And she knew that was wrong, but didn't feel close to this baby. And so I invited her to move to a chair and tell me the story of the birth and this birth experience. And then I had her tell me the story again. 
And then I had her tell me the story again. And I had her tell me the story again, four or five times. And each time she tells the story, it begins, you know, more emotions appear, more details, you know, emerge. And then I had her do a dialogue with, with her child, which is also technically called Relationships and Encounters. And she was able to develop a new story in which she began to see she and her baby were together the victims of the hospital and the medical staff. And it was kind of the two of us against the world. And this really shifted her. And she now felt much closer to the child. You know, and I felt that, I think she felt the child had been kind of hurting her in some ways. You know, now, now the, the you know, there's like a new enemy. <laughs> and that was, uh, you know, that was like a one session major shift for her. So there was a releasing of the burden she'd been carrying. She'd had a certain view of what occurred and the relationship with the child. But once she started to tell the story, the story developed and changed through repetition, which helped her develop a different relationship with the child. I mean, telling the story, you know, is, is an extremely powerful technique and telling it repeatedly, you know, but you have to watch, you know, some patients can't, you know, they tell it once, that's all they can do that day, that's fine, or they tell half the story. But there's, there's a, an extraordinary power into this repetitive storytelling. It's partly exposure therapy. Also, I would say to therapists, it's also exposure therapy for the therapists. I, I worked in tra- trauma study for three years and, you know, or I learned a lot, but also, you know, talking to patients, many patients tell me their therapists don't want to hear the trauma stories. And I think these, these stories are horrifying to us and they, they, you know, they frighten us and they disturb us. But when you, you get the patients to tell the story repeatedly, not only do they process the story, but you become habituated to the story and you get more comfortable with it. You can talk about, you talk about details, you use very, you know, specific language and really engage with, with it. Because, um, you, know, you know, I know the first time you hear a story is like horrifying. You, you, hold, you want to tighten up your whole body. I'm thinking of a client of mine who was in a terrible situation after someone close to her unfortunately died in a farming accident and she'd been giving strength to everyone else. She'd never really told the story. So one of our first tasks was for her to write the story, then for me to read it, and then for her to tell it to me, but in more detail. She was feeling very protective of me that I wouldn't be able to cope with the anxiety with the story. Sure. But that was slowly stripped away until she could speak it more comfortably and feel like she'd been heard. That sounds great. So like you did a beautiful job there. And I, I like the way you kind of went step by step, you know, with the writing it first and reading it. And, you know, so that's that's great. Right. And the, and the other... Um, one of the other variants of storytelling is, is imagery or scripting, which is when you go back and you change the story. And I think it's especially, especially useful for childhood, you know, stepping in, going back in imagery, bringing the adult self in, the therapist in, blocking the abuser, claiming power, claiming mastery, giving voice. Um, that's extremely powerful. I don't really distinguish between chair work and imagery. To me, they're kind of the two, two sides of the same coin. But, um, you know, that's, that's certainly a standard in schema therapy. So the, the third dialogue is what I call internal dialogues. We have kind of different parts of the self engage in some way. And they're basically sort of uh, three ways of doing this. 
the first is kind of you you speak from different parts of yourself. You just kind of let them give voice to them. Um, so you you might say you know typical issue. You know I want to I want to be successful at my job. I want to be successful at work. I want to be a successful therapist. And the other chair, you can say you know I want to be there for my family. I want to be there for my my spouse. I want to be there for my children. You know so these these two parts of the working, the working self, you know, and, and the, and the family self, or, you know, I want to be part of my church. I want to be part of my, you know, my religious institution. I want to have a spiritual path and just giving voice to these different parts, their desires. And I've been struck about the ancient Greeks had this idea that one way, one way that creativity develops is through the juxtaposition of different things. And, um, so, so just by giving voice to these parts, you're kind of allowing them to be in the same space with each other, though not necessarily directly engaging in dialogue. In and of itself, can, I think it can be a, a creative and interesting thing for people to do. But more typically, people have parts that talk to each other directly. You know, um, cognitive restructuring would be, you know, a very basic example of one one chair representing kind of, you know, a distorted cognition or belief. And the other chair representing, you know, some kind of rational response. So, just to give you examples. So, Jeff Young, in his book, has example of, of a woman who, uh, you know, is basically um, she's got a friend, and you know, her, her friend her friend talks to her all the time, and she listens to her friend, but she feels blocked about, uh, you know, sharing her life with him, and. Um, you know, that uh, it's not okay, basically sort of self-sacrifice schema. You know, she's not okay. She should just listen to him. She should give to him. She should never ask. This is imbalance in the relationship. So he says, you know, basically healthy relationships are built on reciprocity and balance. And so one chair, she goes through the rules of, you know, I'm, you know, his needs are more important than mine. I'm not supposed to, you know, ask for things. I just just be there for him. And the other chair is, you know, that doesn't make sense. I want to be in a healthy relationship. I listen to him. He listens to me. I have a voice. I want to share. And she kind of goes back and forth between these two and is able to shift, you know. He actually then later on goes, has her close her eyes and go back to early imagery and brings up images of her mother who actually told her, you're supposed to take care of me. So he actually gets the childhood origins of that. Um, but that's a more common thing of engaging with parts directly. And the third one is... One part witnesses the others. So this is more like act and third wave. Um, Eckhart Rodiger is really doing a lot with this these days of kind of having chairs representing different parts and then standing back from the parts and looking at your parts. What he calls creating a mode map with your, your, your inner leader and your inner critic voice and your vulnerable child and your self-soothing, maybe you know, the part that wants to eat, eat too much and stepping back and looking at these things and getting space from it. And... Um, one interesting thing about chair work and mindfulness, I think probably many of you people are using mindfulness, at least one way I understand mindfulness is kind of creating an inner observer where you're observing feelings, observing emotions, uh, but stepping back in a way in your, in your mind. But chair work, we can also stand back from our parts. We lay out our parts in chairs and step back and look at them. So, so curiously, mindfulness and chair work both use the dimension of space. Mm. Which I think is very interesting. Mm. I find with one of my eating disorder clients that she's able to step away and observe her disordered eating as just a part of her 
rather than it being all of her. Right. Then she can see there is another part of her that just wants to live and wants to be well. And then you can have a part stand back and say, uh, you know, I can see these different parts of me. And then if you move to self-compassion, you can also have that, that part say, I know I see the part of you that struggled with the eating and I know that you were in a lot of pain and I feel for you. And I see the part that wants to live a full life and I sense your frustration. I also feel for you as well. Yes. So that's where self-compassion can play in this, in this sort of observer's stance as well. I see. Fourthly, relationships and encounters. Right. And this is basically working with people, either issues of grief or issues of um, mistreatment by others or difficult relationships. And here we can express love, anger, fear, sorrow, grief. Right? We put the person on the chair and we talk to this person and we, um, you know, just we express our feelings towards them. And there are a couple of ways of doing this that are simple, some of the ways that are more complicated. But this is, you know, this is the world of the interpersonal world and the relationship world. Mm. A client of mine in her 60s has had several terminations when she was young and felt tremendous grief. Sure. And by putting those lost children on chairs one by one, she was able to seek forgiveness and express whatever she had to express and to her pain. Is that the sort of thing you might do? Yes. Um, I would... When it comes to abortions, um, I would be very slow on that one. We'd certainly be working on it for a while before I tackled that one. One thing you might want to do also is to have the person slowly tell the story of what happened and have them tell that story re- repeatedly. Depends on where the person is. That, 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 that the abortion itself may have been kind of a trauma story and certainly a story that's never been shared or likely never been shared. You know, what was that day like? What did you go through? But then talking to the uh, you know, talking to the child. Okay. But it's you know it's amazing it's amazingly powerful way of working with those issues. But I would be ginger with that one. Go slowly. But it sounds like you did a beautiful piece of work there. So uh, congratulations on that. Okay. And it seems that doing chair work, information and emotion comes out that just wouldn't be available in talkie sessions. Chair work is this extraordinary art. It's kind of a process, but you don't, you know you don't know where it's going to go, and you don't know what's going to emerge. And that's obviously a little nerve wracking, but also that's kind of you know as you get more com- comfortable with it, you you know trust start to trust the process. Um, and I would say also to people, you know these, you know, you don't want to start chair work ten minutes before your session ends. You want to make sure you get time. And if you are going to do something like an abortion or some serious trauma. You might want to do a double session. You know, you might want to give lots of time. Um, you really think, you know, think out what you're going to do because you, you want people to have time to, to come back to, uh, you know, ground themselves if they need to and come back and, you know, reorient themselves. But, um, you know, I, I think you're having these experiences. So many astonishing things happen with chair work. What advice would you give someone thinking of giving chair work a go for the first time? Well, I think you need to do small, you know, small steps. You know, you do a little bit at a time and you should, you know, you don't want to get out of your depth. And, you know, I mean, people, people are sometimes amazed at the things they see me do in these demonstrations, you know, but what it is, is I've just done many, many small steps for a very long time to get a little more courage and a little, you know, I know I've seen a little bit more. So, you know, if people listen to this podcast, even this like they go to their session to a session this afternoon or tomorrow, they can just say, someone told you about their father, and you can say, Well, 
if your father were here, what would you say to him? Don't even don't even use the chairs, you know. Just just even that that little bit, or you know, it sounds like you're of two minds. I wonder if you could speak from that part that you know that wants to go to grad school, and then that part that seems frightened of it, you know. Just small things like that, but that's how um, you know. That's how you begin. Any final suggestions for us? Um, yeah, I would say to people listening to this, you know, go to my website. There's a lot of you know free material there, transformationalchairwork.com. But you know, I would say, you know, try this. Do, first of all, you can do it by yourself in your home, you know, just alone in your office, and small steps. You know, don't don't be afraid. Do something, and I think you'll. You know, it's not for everybody. Not every therapist likes to work this way, um, but. You know, if you if you have some of the experiences that you've just described and I've described, you know, it is an amazing way to work with people and helps them get better much more quickly and really can help you break through people who are very trapped and very stuck. So, and thank you for inviting me for this podcast. I appreciate it. Scott Kellogg, thank you so much for your time. If you found this interesting and want to know more, once again, Scott's website is transformationalchairwork.com. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinically Thinking. And I hope you'll join us again next time.